We've got some big news to tell you about from our partners at Conservative Review. It's CRTV, a brand new commercial-free digital network featuring Mark Levin, Michelle Malkin, and Mark Stein. You get all of this content anywhere you go, your laptop, tablet, cell phone, or even on Roku or Apple TV. And you can have all of this programming for a year for only $89 if you sign up before December 1st at CRTV.com. But to get that special price, you've got to use my name at the checkout, Dace. That's D-E-A-C-E. So go to CRTV.com and sign up today. Levin, Malkin, Stein, all for $89 a year. If you go to CRTV.com today and use the promo code Dace. Steve Dace here for Freedom Fest, the biggest and most successful liberty event of the year, attracting thousands of people, including hundreds of liberty-oriented speakers, think tanks, nonprofits, and sponsors. This year's Freedom Fest is taking place in Las Vegas, July 19th through the 22nd. Exploring new frontiers is the theme of this year's festivities and includes sessions on technology, the liberty movement, politics, investing, business, education, healthy living, and much more. John Stossel, Lisa Kennedy, Dan Bongino, Deneen Burrell, Steve Forbes, Jim Rogers, and even Star Trek's own William Shatner will keynote the event. Register today for $100 off the regular rate by using code CRTV100 at the checkout. You won't want to wait, though. This code only works for the first 100 registrations that use it. Freedom Fest 2017, coming to Las Vegas, July 19th through the 22nd. It'll be here before you know it. Go to FreedomFest.com for more information and to sign up. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Happy Thursday here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by conservative review on the Salem Radio Network. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Coming up here in about 15 minutes, Billy Hallowell is going to join us from FaithWire.com to look at the intersection of faith and politics in a couple of stories that have been out in the news uh, this week, including one that I wrote about for Conservative Review today. We'll get to more on that here in a moment. I want to remind you, though, that uh, our last day here on the Salem Radio Network is February 17th. It was announced yesterday. Former Congressman Joe Walsh will be taking our place in this time slot, so uh, we are proud to pass the baton to him and wish him well. If you want to make sure you don't miss an episode of CRTV, when we make the move over there, starting February the 27th, use the promo code DACE, D-E-A-C-E, use the promo code DACE, take advantage of that substantial discount now at CRTV.com, where we promise to be every bit as mediocre there, maybe even more so than we have been here on commercial radio as well, and for longer. No commercials, so we are just going to wax mediocrity continuously until they turn the mics off every day at CRTV.com. I've been disappointed, but not surprised by some things I have seen from some of you over the last 24 hours. You should be furious. You should be. Many of you, though, are not. And that's why you lose. 
you should be furious to see a president of the United States that you are mostly responsible for electing. Do you know mathematically how difficult it is to get to 270 electoral college votes by losing the popular vote by about 2 million votes? It's pretty hard, guys. It's a mathematical anomaly, really. And without those of you in the faith community and your historic level proportion of turnout, he's not there. So you should be furious when you find out, as I told you yesterday, that that 20 minutes into his daily intelligence briefing, according to the White House's official press log, that chronicles what the president's time is for public record. While he was in his intelligence briefing, according to that White House log, is when his tweet defending his daughter and Nordstrom's and demanding they keep her her, her fashion line was timestamped. So he has time to demand an upscale department store continue his daughter's fashion line. And let's face it, she's not a victim. If her name were Ivanka Manischewitz, she wouldn't have a fashion line at Nordstrom. So I think we all know she has one because her name is Trump. And it's not like they're missing a few billion dollars. It's not like they don't get to go to the bathroom on daddy's gold-plated toilet on his jet plane. These aren't victims. They got a pretty nice life, guys. I think they got this. They aren't kind of owning it right now, you know. You should be furious that he is spending his time doing this and not protecting your religious liberty as he promised. And that if you spent more time demanding that he protect your liberty than you do in protecting him, he would have predicted or protected your liberty by now. Instead, I had numerous interactions with people claiming to be Christians. Attacking me for pointing this out. Now, how do you know you're an idolater? There's several reasons. Here's one. You know you're an idolater when you attack the person demanding your idol keep his promises to you rather than your idol himself. I had a Baptist minister come at me yesterday saying, well, you'd use the White House for the same thing. Even if that were true, that's a moral relativity argument. Is it true that I'm probably as capable of all the stuff that we think Donald Trump is capable of? I think we're all capable of those things. That's why we're not the standard. That's humanism. That's moral relevance. That is moral relativism. Would expect a Baptist minister to point out Jesus is the standard, not us. I would expect a Baptist minister to say, you know, I mean, I, I voted for this guy. He owes me, you know. The worker is worth his hire. Where's my wage? Exactly. That's what I would expect a minister to say. I had people tell me, he was at sin days, cast the first stone. You know, I'm wondering when he was yelling about lock her up, calling his old friend Hillary Clinton, crooked Hillary. Were you demanding that your idol, let he who was at sin, cast the first stone? Were you taking that verse out of context then, or were you cheering and applauding along? Thunderous applause. Which was it, do you think? A few things on this. One, when you bring me your fake Christianity, I've got endless, and I mean like literally endless energy to club it, and I will. And I will do so ruthlessly every chance I have. Why? Because when you look at the scriptures, what you see is when people are earnestly in doubt, There is endless mercy for them 
when you guys have emailed me questions, even when they have been questions that challenge or confront the faith in uncomfortable ways, have I not gone out of my way to be gracious and patient in responding to them? Probably as gracious and patient as I am capable at, at this stage of my life, which admittedly is a low bar, but I'm yes, I try to be. But you know what you also see in those same scriptures is when, is when you distort the faith purposely. When you put forth your idolatry and your fake humanistic whims as religion and, and pronounce it as orthodoxy in all of your humanistic sanctimony, you know what happens? You get slapped hard. Why? Because I think it's because people that are that deep into idolatry just can't be reasoned with with simple pleases and thank yous. They are, they are literally delirious with their idol. And it requires a level of provocation in order to get their attention. So I'm going to practice this quite a bit the next four years. And it's not because I disagree with you, but because I don't. He owes you. Frankly, I, this has actually gone better than I thought it was going to. How many times have you heard me say that on the radio? But I also didn't vote for him and had zero expectations to negative integer ones. You know, but we're not supposed to give up doing good for one another. We are a faith community. I know most of the people in our faith community disagreed with me on this. I'm not breaking fellowship with you, even if you choose to break fellowship with me. So I'm going to have your back, whether you like it or not. And he owes you. And I don't care how much it ticks you off. I don't care how much you can't handle it. If I was in your situation, that whole love your neighbors, you love yourself thing, if I was in your situation, I'd want my brother or sister to defend my honor and make sure that the other party in this arrangement lived up to their end of the bargain. I'd want that. So whether you want it or not, I know many of you don't want that. You just want to watch Fox. You just want to fawn. Let me just tell you, the worst thing to do to any politician is become a fawner, particularly one as ego-driven and narcissistic as this one. If you condition any politician, particularly this one, that all he's got to do is throw crumbs your way, give you a talking point, that's all he'll do. That's all he'll do. We've seen this with, he loses interest with women. He loses interest with businesses. Been there, done that, got the notch in the belt, bought the t-shirt. Time to move on. He will lose interest with you if you teach him that all he has to do is show you a little bit of interest and then that's all. I just want validation. He owes you a lot more than validation. He owes you protection because he wouldn't be there without you. So whether you can handle it or not, whether you like it or not, I'm going to sit here, even if I am a lone voice crying in the wilderness, even if I'm sitting here at the edge of a very broken, damaged wall, I will play the role of watchman, and I will demand that he keep his promises. Likely won't have an impact one way or the other. Many of you will hate me for doing it, but you know what? When my time behind this microphone is done, it is not all of you and your fake biblical exegesis that I will give an account to, but my creator. Because if it was up to me, I'd just say to hell with y'all and laugh at you. Because what's happening to you is everything I told you last year was going to happen to you. But it's not up to me. So I won't. I'll do the right thing. 
even though I really don't want to, but I will, because that's the obligation you sign up for when your life is not your own. He owes you. You should demand he pay up. And something tells me that if you spent more time demanding that he protect your liberty than you do protecting him, he would have paid up by now. More in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. Rules for Patriots, the Steve Day Show. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Billy Hallowell joins us from FaithWire. You can visit their website, faithwire.com. Billy, it's good to have you back, brother. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing well. You guys have a story up today that I actually wrote a column about uh, this morning at Conservative Review. Uh, And uh, my version of events uh, is titled, or my take on uh, the events. I don't have my own version of them. This is not fake news, but, but, <laughs> but, but my take on what went down here, I, I titled it a, a, the culture war comes to a Tennessee football game. And you guys wrote about what happened here. Tell our audience about it. Yeah, you know, this is just one of the most bizarre stories because what you have here is a high school football coach, or I'm sorry, a high school football team, rather, that has this injury, this horrific injury uh, back in September. One of the players is laid out on the ground for a half an hour. Everybody's watching in horror, and you have a youth pastor who's there, and one of the players says to him, hey, would you be willing to pray for this player who's injured? And so, of course, this youth pastor, who is not an employee of the district, by the way, he starts to pray and the coaches around him they bow their heads they pray with him um, and, and this becomes what what should have been a very scary moment that was made nice by somebody coming in and offering up a prayer to put everybody at ease and to help this poor kid who's injured becomes this drama where the freedom from religion foundation steps in and files a complaint against the district on behalf of some local unnamed person who didn't want to come forward and, and put their name out there um, who didn't like the prayer and who felt it was an endorsement um, on behalf of the coaches, an unconstitutional endorsement of prayer. So those are, those are the basic facts of the case. Now, I mean, this to me is completely different. Let's say it were there were coaches who were mandating that players prayed, or this was something that was pre-planned where, where it was said, you have to pray. That didn't happen. That did not happen here. A youth pastor on site prayed and people willingly joined in. And the fact that this is being called some sort of constitutional violation, you know, to me, uh, is just insane. Why is a Tennessee school district translated as Congress? <laughs> right. It says well, Congress look, shall make no law with the establishment of a religion. Doesn't say anything about your college campus. Doesn't say anything about your elementary school. Doesn't say anything about your high school. Doesn't say anything about your city council building. I mean, I, I mean, the guys who wrote that document were pretty darn well smart, uh, and they wrote it for folks with an eighth grade education. And most of our law students today couldn't understand it. So uh, Congress <laughs> should actually mean Congress, shouldn't it? 
Right. And well, and this is what they do, right? I mean, they, they try to find, and, and to be fair, every once in a while they make a case where you sort of say, okay, well, let's have a conversation. This case, in most of them, I'm just scratching my head and I'm left saying, okay, well, how are we having this, this issue? Do people, lo- do coaches lose their free speech rights, their First Amendment rights because they're coaches? I mean, no, they, they bowed their heads. And what I think is sort of interesting here, by the way, is that, you know, they filed this complaint with the Hamilton County Schools and, you know, the school school district comes back and says, okay, you know, we're going to offer training to make sure everybody understands what the law says, but we don't think we did anything wrong here. They're, they're not admitting fault. And what makes me, it sort of makes me laugh, but then I'm also annoyed is you have the Freedom From Religion Foundation pledging to send another letter because they want the district to admit that this was wrong. And, and from what we see, the coaches are not going to do that. The district is probably not going to do that. And I would bet if they push this, the Freedom from Religion Foundation, they wouldn't get anywhere. I don't think that this is what happened here is not again. I mean, look, the, the case of Joe Kennedy, the other football coach out in Washington State, there were two issues going on. He was praying in the locker room and he was also praying on the 50 yard line. Once a complaint was filed, he said, you know what? I'm going to stop praying inside the locker room because maybe I do have a captive audience, but I'm not going to stop on the 50-yard line, and he shouldn't because his prayer on the 50-yard line after games is protected. There, there's no reason why he should. So, you know, look, I think we we can look at this and sort of laugh, but the troubling thing is districts sometimes do bow to this, and you end up basically taking rights away from people when they, when that shouldn't happen. The previous, the other coach, in that, when that story emerged, if he wants to say, hey, hey, um, I, I want to respect differences and do that of his own volition. Uh, I'm going to pray out in the open rather than to a captive audience in a locker room. God bless him. But he should, yes, not, should, he should not make that concession to these people because this a story like this proves what a, the, the canard, Billy, that they have been promoting all along. There is no level. There is no level of emaciation, no level of of humility. There is no level of, of of graciousness that you can show in diminishing your own worldview. Because here's here's one thing you know that we often forget as believers. You know we are taught biblically that that there can be no fellowship between light and darkness. But but sometimes we forget that there can be no fellowship between darkness and light as well, because the darkness mm-hmm. likes to tell us it's all for fellowship. We can all, you know, life is syncretism, and you can believe this and that and this and that, and you can throw in, you know, dash of newt and wing of bat, stern in a cauldron, and then puke, and out comes a worldview, and that's okay. And that is the lie that the darkness sells until it gains a full foothold or thinks it has a beachhead or an advantage. And then once it does, it says, you know what, we actually don't want to have any fellowship with the light any more than the light does with the dark. And that's what a story like this shows these people are just god haters this isn't some honest dispute about civil liberties and it never has been these are people that have no regard reverence whatsoever this is a romans one moment and there's no amount of graciousness or accommodation that we could that we could bestow that would satisfy them no, I mean, it's insane. It actually borders on complete insanity, the arguments that are being made in cases like this. And I think, you know, again, all of this has it has a practical legal discussion that we can have. But then there's the theological discussion, which you, you're sort of speaking to part of that as well. And what is going on in this country, in this world right now? And, you know, I, I'm fascinated by it. I'm troubled by it. And I think we're going to see that this notion of bullying people with letters and threats 
into complying, I think this has been out of control. I am encouraged that we're seeing people sort of push back against some of this. And, and I think we need to see more of that. And, and we have to you know, be open to understand, OK, are there cases where, you know, somebody forces something on somebody? Well, if that's happening, fine. But nine times out of ten, that is not what's happening in these cases at all. See, I think we should just practice civil disobedience. We're not going to show up in court. You can sue us all you want. If you want to arrest us for praying, so be it. That, then we're, we're just, we are not even going to acknowledge the premise of your argument. That's how I think we should respond to these things. And, and look, I think in, in cases like this, too, I, and I've seen some districts, they just don't even respond. I mean, they don't even respond to the letter. And what you will sometimes see, to the point that, that you've just made, is the, the Freedom from Religion Foundation will drop it. This was the case with the, um, you know, in God we trust decals on the sheriff's cars. They were not able to find anybody to sue. Some of the sheriffs wrote really funny letters back, slamming them when they, when they complained that cop cars had these decals on them. Others just ignored it entirely, and what you ended up seeing happen was no no case developed because they couldn't find anybody who was willing to sue over it and so sometimes i think that's a a really good tactic to take um laugh it off ignore or or what you're saying is just kind of you know fight back against it don't show up and and see what happens i do think i mean look you think back to kim davis and what happened with that and that's a different case for a lot of reasons but um it is it is interesting the end result of her case whether people think she was an idiot not an idiot whatever they think was that she kind of won that case. And and so it, it's, a, it's sort of a fascinating benchmark, I think, to look at in some of these uh, disputes. Billy Hallowell is here with us from FaithWire. You can visit their website at faithwire.com. We're going to talk Trump, Christianity, and immigration bans next. Listening to Steve Dace. Never attack what you're not willing to kill. This is Steve Dace. Right back here with Billy Hallowell from FaithWire.com. So, Billy, I got to tell you, I'm always suspicious when I see from mainstream media stories like we saw during the election. A hundred evangelical leaders send note that you can't vote for Trump. And you, I think, know me well enough to know I'm hardly a Trump fanboy, but I was smelling a rat here. So, you know, I'm the, I'm the guy that actually goes and looks at who signs these things instead of just mm-hmm. reading the headline and thinking I know what it said. And in there is literally every leftist heretic Marxist pretend evangelical name in America was on that sheet. I mean, this was clearly <laughs> an attempt to try and hijack orthodoxy through a partisan election, right? And we called it out at the time. So I went and looked at the list, uh, courtesy of your website, of some of the people that uh, signed on to this letter um, that uh, was criticizing uh, President Trump's uh, ban on uh, immigration travel uh, from seven countries that was actually recommended from the previous administration under Obama, these seven countries. And there are some people that are very well respected within evangelicalism in there. And and my question to them would be, are we conflating the God-given jurisdictions of the church with the state? For example, you know, I've donated to World Vision. I last Christmas spent time on my show uh, promoting a Heart for Lebanon, which was a uh, an outreach to refugees there uh, and to reach them with material goods as well as uh, the gospel. 
on the other hand, though, that that's our role in the church. The, the role of the government is not to make life easier for Open Doors USA. The role of the government is to bring the sword of righteousness against the evildoer. And one of the ways it does that is it protects our security. And I'm wondering, are, are, are we conflating in the church here? What is the role of the state and what is the role of the church in an issue like this? Yeah, no, I personally, yes, I, I think so. And it's fascinating to watch people appeal to Leviticus and other and other places to make arguments on on the behalf of, you know, fighting back against what they're calling a, you know, Muslim ban. But these same people probably wouldn't be looking to Leviticus to uh, talk about some of the other issues that are that are mm-hmm. in that book. You know, I, I just to me, I find it sort of bizarre that people in our society today are having a very difficult time extrapolating details and really looking at things. I had noticed that, really. Okay, continue. <laughs> Tell me more. Yes. Well, it's, it's, I mean, you know this better than anybody, but it's, and, and I think we're seeing it more publicly and the inability. Everything is conflated, everything's thrown in together. And yes, there's plenty of things that are wrong with Trump. We know that, you know that, I know that. But this particular issue fascinates me because he, there's an authority here for him and for our government to be protecting us. And I think when you take seven countries that, like, as you mentioned, were previously named by the Obama administration as countries of concern, um, and and we have a temporary now. I think if people want to argue the Syrian, you know, until further notice, refugee ban, they can have that argument, and and that's fine. But I think the the broader issue here that people are focusing on is this outrage over these seven countries. When really this is not. When you read through the order, it's relatively benign, and that was what struck me the most is just how the media has covered this and how churches are jumping in. And I have found it problematic since day one that so many. And, and as you said, I mean, you've got Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. You've got the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, Leith Anderson, um, David Curry, who I really like um, from Open Doors USA. Mm-hmm. They have signed on to this to this letter, and that's fine. They have the right to do that. But I think we should be much more careful um, as Christians in how we're responding to this sort of thing um, and realizing that Donald Trump's job and our government's job is to protect us. And that is what the goal is here. And I think that we have to focus on that and understand that. And so I've I've been a little bit turned off watching some of these leaders become so hard on this issue and take it into a direction I think um, is is a little bit lazy and not extrapolating the the differences, as you said, of what the church should be doing and what the state should be doing here. And so that's where I stand on it. And, you know, we we cover these things at Faithwire to be fair. I mean, we've done a ton of uh, of stories on Muslims who actually favor mm-hmm. the ban. <laughs> and, I've seen those um, stories. And yeah. This is the other side of it. Well, and, and that's not to say, by the way, there's not a role for these ministry leaders to lobby their own government. They're free citizens in our republic Absolutely. as well, and they can lobby their own government to say, hey, make the case for us that this is really a security risk that is worthy of us putting security ahead of compassion. And that's where you get a good balance in a culture. But the number one goal, or the number one primary uh, option on the table for President Trump and this is his God-given role as President of the United States, is the protection of the people of these United States. If Absolutely. he can be compassionate to the people in Syria and these other six countries in the process of doing so, then by all means, do so. But that, that doesn't take the place of his primary goal. And that's my concern, is we seem to be acting as if President Trump's primary goal is refugees in Yemen and not uh, the American people. <laughs> right. And I, and I have to say this. Look, 
I have many of the same concerns uh, about Trump that, that you have. But I will say, I have, I've met, I had a chance to go down and meet with him and some other faith leaders back in October. And I've interviewed him numerous times in the past. And the issue of Christians and minority groups in the Middle East is actually something he does have a legitimate All right, hold it right passion. there up against the break, because I want to let you finish that point when we come back. You're listening to Steve Dace. them by their own petards. The Steve Day Show. All right, back here one final time with Billy Hallowell from Faithwire. And and I wanted to let you finish that point, Billy, because in some of this is, is the president's fault. I mean, the way that he communicates like a fifth grader on Twitter. <laughs> and you can always tell when Kellyanne or somebody else's or Ivanka's tweeting and when it's Donald by the amount of exclamation points used, right? So, um, you know, when everything ends with an exclamation point or the word sad or terrible. So because of the way he communicates on social media, I think he has given people uh, this false pretense that he hasn't he doesn't really think anything through at all. He's just a person just reacting. And so when you tell our audience right before this last break, hey, I've met with him in person, the plights of religious minorities is something he's actually uh, very thoughtful about. I want our audience to hear a side of the story that they don't they certainly don't get from the media, but they sometimes don't even get from Trump himself. So tell us more about that. Absolutely. Yeah, he's a terrible communicator. And I think he also rolled this out very poorly. I'm not going to defend the rollout of this. But look, I mean, the one thing that came through in, in numerous times interacting with him is that he really does care about what's going on in the Middle East. He does care about my Minority groups there. And it's fascinating to me because I think back to 2013 when I interviewed him about Pastor Abedini, who was then detained in Iran, um, and he talked quite a bit about that issue. And at the time, and this has become public now, he gave he had just given a $10,000 check to Pastor Abedini's wife um, 10 minutes before I got to his office to interview him. And he really wasn't looking to have that um, detail be spread out to the media. And so I didn't really include it in my initial report um, because I wanted to respect that. And he was, again, very passionate about that issue. In the October meeting, um, it came up quite a bit. And out of all the things that were discussed, there was plenty that he didn't understand, plenty of the concerns that evangelicals and Catholics had in that room. He was trying to understand, but didn't quite grasp it. But when it came to that issue, he did. And, you know, I, I believe him when he says he wants to help those minority groups and people can debate whether or not he should be prioritizing Christians over other groups. But the fact is he's got a passion for the issue. He should communicate that better, I think. And I really do think he's trying to balance that with keeping America safe. And so, you know, we'll see how this all rolls out, but I will give him that because I think it's true and it's important to know that he has acted not just in saying he has that passion, but he has actually tried to support um, at least one family who was impacted by the chaos going on in the Middle East. Well, and, and you saw that in, in part of that executive order. It did not give preference to Christians, as the media reported, but religious minorities, including right. the Yazidis and other groups that were involved in those countries as well. So if he has a passion for protecting religious liberty, why have we not yet seen that? In his presidency, there was supposed to be, I guess, an executive order about a week and a half ago, and then they backed away, came back the next day. In fact, I had reporters calling me and friends of mine in our in the movement wanting to get preemptive quotes because they were getting their stories ready, anticipating that this order protecting religious liberty was coming down. And instead, they come out the next day and say, well, no, actually, the we're just going to keep in the order that actually says to Christians, you can't be a government contractor if you won't change your morality uh, for homosexuality. The, the, the yeah. one that Obama had. So what's going on there, do you think? 
Well, I think that's an area, this is an area of concern. One thing that was evident in the meeting that happened back in October is that I think he thought by saying I'm going to nominate a conservative to the Supreme Court and by you know proclaiming over and over again that he cared about all of these Christians who were under siege for not you know baking cakes for weddings and all that he didn't seem to want to want to go further or he didn't seem to know that he needed to go further you mean he was that. a politician that thought if he just gave you a, a, an attaboy and patage on the head he thought that'd be enough shocking well listen yeah. there were particular people in that room who challenged him and people who even supported him you know, very fiercely, fiercely on this. And they said, you need to come out in support of these people. You need to go further. And he, and he listened. And, you know, my, my hope was, okay, he's going to do more. He's going to push harder on this issue. So I do think that's an area for people to be skeptical and to push him on because he didn't quite seem to think he needed to do it. I don't think it was him not wanting to do it. I think he thought, Hey, they're going to love me if I give them a conservative Supreme Court justice. And they're going to love me if I have this, this, you know, aura of wanting to support them. But, um, and one thing I will say, well, he's right uh, about that. I mean, that's where we have to define the word need. Most of our people are are are, are satisfied with uh, table scraps. Most yes. of our people are perfectly that they just want to they just want to know that Sean Hannity won the argument on Fox News last night and then it'll <laughs> go away. And then when you go on Twitter and you say, hey, this guy is not keeping his promises to you. They will then turn around and attack you uh, for for de- for demanding their idol keep his promises rather than right. attack their idol. I go through this on a daily basis. So he yeah. he so morally he needs to do he, he needs to do more. I agree. But politically, all he essentially had to do was just say Jesus a few times. And most of let's face it, most of our people are like, hey, man. And I'd vote for the GOP nominee if it was a ham sandwich. Well, and that's the confusing part. I don't understand the people who are all in. And I have friends, I have people who I respect who really believe he's living this solid Christian life. And I'm not going to judge his heart, but I don't see that. Um, and, you know, the public persona of who he is is definitely not that. So he's got some work to do there, I think, too. And everyone's on their own journey. But when it comes to this issue, um, a lot of us are very concerned about what's happening to these business owners. And we want to see some sort of protection and action, even if it's it's particular, obviously, to wedding vendors and all of that. Um, and and people in that room challenged him and they said you need to do more you have to do more so my hope is that he will do more but there are forces on the other side and i've even heard his daughter you know kind of pulling him back from from some of this so we will see we will see how it all shakes out i guess this is where believers have to understand the way the political process works if if they spent more time demanding trump keep his promises and protect their liberty than they do protecting trump he would have by now i think that's pretty obvious oh absolutely that's the way the system works Well, look, he's also very sympathetic to this. And I will say this about him. He seems like somebody who values people who are devoted to him. So whether or not he agrees with them fully, he was looking to reward some of those people. And some of these evangelicals who are so embedded, I think, could exert more of that influence and could have even earlier before, obviously, the election in saying you have to do this. The Supreme Court is not enough. You are going to have to be an advocate for these people. And, and I think the March for Life was another example of him trying to sure. say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to support you. But it, that's not exactly what we're looking for him to do. We're looking for him to do more than just send somebody to show up and, and speak at the event and send a tweet about it. Well, so, well, he did us a solid on the March for Life. But, he did. But, but, he did. But that's a solid. What we need, though, a solid doesn't protect my First Amendment rights. It's a nice gesture, and it is much appreciated, and it helps to change a culture to agree to my viewpoint. So that should not be understated. But ultimately, policy is where the rubber meets the road. Billy, we appreciate it, my friend. We'll do it again. Thanks a lot. All right, that's Billy Allowell from uh, FaithWire.com. 
Yeah, I don't want to diminish. I didn't mean to do that if it came across that way, because I thought he helped us out quite a bit on the March for Life thing. And we touted that a lot when that was going on about a week and a half ago. But but ultimately, we want to get to a culture where we don't have to do that march anymore. And, and so that means, how do we get there? He keeps his promise uh, to nominate pro-life justices. He keeps his promise to protect religious liberty so that we are free to keep standing for what we believe in and speaking out against the evils of our age. That's ultimately what wins. Solids are nice gestures. They move the ball down the field as well. But, but they don't win the football game. That policy is what wins. You're listening to Steve Dace. How conservatives can win again. The Steve Day Show. So let's get some reaction to the conversation we just had with uh, Billy Hallowell from Faith Wire. Todd, what did you hear from Billy that stood out to you? I was uh, very interested in your conversation about how the church passes off its responsibility to government. I can't count the number of conversations I've had with fellow Christians. And when you point out the notion that, you know, that's not government's job, that's the church's job. Again, I mentioned this earlier this week, but from, I get from, the from, Jehovah Witness look. Yeah, from the, from the same strand of Christianity that says uh, that, that, the, that uh, government uh, has no moral responsibility on these other areas that it clearly does, it somehow has all responsibility on these other issues that it clearly does not. Right, and, and, and these people often also, you know, find reasons, you know, the hard cases in abortion, things like that, where, you know, just let the woman uh, you know, choose a point where a legitimate government saying, you know what? We don't kill people, right? So we we are fundamentally fundamentally unmoored from multiple truths of Christianity, and this is one example where then it gets perverse to the point of government becoming the new religion. Going back to that conversation you and Billy had about the Freedom from Religion Foundation going after a youth pastor who prayed over somebody who was injured at a football game. It is. So important, and it is crucial that we all understand that these people are not atheists. They are anti-theists. In my mind, there's a distinction, and we can get into that in another day. No, I think that I think you're making a good distinction, actually. Well, there are atheists, and you can get along with an atheist because an atheist, um, for the most part, will not try to force uh, uh, force their belief system on you and society. Anti-theists just have a grudge against God. Atheist, true atheism, just believes that there there isn't a God and acts like it. Anti-theists have a they they know that there is a God and they have a grudge against Him, and you see that bear borne out in stories like this out of Tennessee. So, being that that is the case, what are we prepared to do against that? Anti-theists are the the, the, the belief of anti-theism, this uh, grudge against God that is from the pit of hell. That is God's enemy. That is that is uh, that is our enemy as Christians. What are we prepared to do about it, and how are we going to react to this when these things prop up in our community? Because they are coming for you. They have made that known. What are we prepared to do about it? And I think we don't understand that what there what there is to do about it. I mean, it goes back to the piece I, I put up at Conservative Review about this today. What was the solution that I gave at the end? Pray. All the louder and all the more publicly, including for the people uh, who are persecuting you. Because as Thomas Jefferson once said, I tremble for my country when I 
consider that God is just and his justice cannot sleep forever. They will face the judgment of the God whose character they besmirch. So pray for them as well. It doesn't require lock and load. It doesn't require evisceration. It doesn't require histrionics. You know what it requires? Just being the people God called you to be. That will devastate the enemy enough. Listening to Steve Dace. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with our second hour here tonight on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Don't forget, February 27th, we debut on CRTV. You'll get to watch us. Instead of just listening to us, and you'll get to just listen to us as well, but uh, there is going to be a podcast version. I cannot promise it will be there day one. That's not to say that it won't be, but we are working on making that happen, so we're going to do that. Uh, But uh, you can definitely watch us beginning on February the 27th. Go to CRTV.com, get your subscription now, and if you use the promo code DACE, you will get a substantial discount when the new show begins there on February the 27th. Now, next hour... Uh, several of you have asked to hear more of the messages I give it to uh, our home church here in Des Moines, where I'm on the preaching team. And we played a few of them. You know, I'm. I think it's a little tacky. Hey, guys, here's a great speech I gave. Let's put it on the radio, you know. Uh, so I kind of leave it up to Aaron on when we play these things or not, unless I know that what I got, what the current message was about, was so distinctively theological that it's probably not a broad enough message for a show like this. So I, I gave a sermon last week at our, or two weeks ago at our church on what church leadership looks like in the culture. It's from uh, Colossians 1, uh, 24, verses 24 through 29 is what I was preaching on. And I gave a message on what does church leadership look like? Because we, all we hear is the church has got to lead more, right? Well, what would it look like if the church actually did? We, we know qu- clearly from Scripture what the qualifications to be a church leader are. But, but then once you're qualified, what does that leadership look like? And so, uh, using those verses uh, from uh, from Paul, I, I drew this uh, framework of what church leadership looks like. And Aaron thinks that, it, that that enough of it applies to what we discuss in our show every night. That we're going to play this in the third hour. That correct? is correct. Yeah. All right. So that means a lot of the stuff we would have normally done in the third hour, we're going to do this hour instead, including three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? Question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. Indeed, it is three questions, and these are three questions that come from the bowels and darkest crevices of the mind of our producer, Aaron. He gets to ask us any three things about any three things. There is nothing off limits. 
But just to make sure he doesn't get too big for his britches, we demand he has to answer the same questions that he asks of us. Three questions on the Steve Day Show, also known as the horror, the Aaron McIntyre Horror Show. Uh, question one, though, does not come from me. It comes from listener Adam Cothran. So we might like this one. We might actually like this one, and I think it's pretty good. He asks, it's been said Ted Cruz wasn't interested in SCOTUS. He's introduced a bill for term limits, which Trump has promised to sign. So what's his end game? POTUS or bust? I don't know. Uh, and I haven't talked to him since uh, mid-November, um, other than an email here or a text there about uh, general matters. I mean, things in depth. So uh, if I, he clearly has a desire to be president of the United States. What I find unique about Ted Cruz, though, is he's every bit as ambitious as every other politician I've ever known. He just has a different type of polit- ambition than most of the politicians I've known. Um, I mean, his desire to be president is, is uh, it's a calling to him. Uh, it's, it's something that, um, that, that he senses um, he's been called to vie for. And he, he's been trained along these lines all of his life by his father, Raphael. I mean, he has literally marinated in the founding uh, documents and writings and principles of, of the country. And so um, because most politicians' ambitions are come from a, uh, a more – and it's not selfish to, to, to want to be successful necessarily. So I don't want to use that word. But most of it comes from a personal drive to achieve – it comes sometimes because Ted's ambition doesn't always come from there. It comes across as sanctimonious to other people because they don't understand it, right? Um, so I, I'm sure that's that's ultimately what he would like to do. But the environment has also changed. He is at least at least eight to ten years from being viable in that process again because of what happened this last fall. And eight to ten years ago, none of us knew who Ted Cruz was. Eight to ten years from now, who knows what the world may look like. The reality of the environment is that if Trump is successful, and, and, and in politics, frankly, success means I, he got reelected. Let's be honest about mm-hmm. that. So if Trump is successful in getting reelected in 2020, he will be the Reagan of this era. Long after he's gone, left the public stage, he's passed on to another life. People are going to say, we need another Trump. People are going to say, I should, I should run the American Conservative Union because I clean toilets in the Trump White House. I should run the RNC because, you know, I was, uh, the, I was the deputy assistant custodial janitor to Ryan's Priebus when he was the, uh, you know, chief of staff. That's the way it's going to work because that's the way it's worked out our whole lives with, you know, uh, I did this for Ronald Reagan. I touched the hem of his garment once. It's like when Alabama spent 30 years, they could only hire people that had actually worked for Bear Bryant. Okay, that's going to be the case. And I think that's I think Ted recognizes that, which is why you can see him cozying up more and more. Uh, with the administration. I think he recognizes that that's going to be the environment. And then if Trump doesn't get reelected, all of the existential arguments we had, or I'm no longer a Republican because I don't like the way the argument turned out, but all the existential arguments about what it means to be a Republican we were having prior to this election will all resurface again. And then that will change the environment. But, but Todd, we don't know what that environment's going to look like for until we get through 2020. Well, whatever the environment is, because the timing that you already laid out, listen, if Ted Cruz or anybody else for that matter at this point in the game, and to go off the premise of your question, Aaron, is POTUS or bust, he should just resign the Senate right now and go home and plant a garden because your, 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 your eye is not on the ball. 
we we have you have a job to do right now in the Senate. Do that as well as you can, and we'll talk about the presidency a long time away. Right. It's it's hard and maybe a little bit uh, slightly tawdry to try to get inside somebody else's mind and say for sure what he's thinking. Um, but it's, it surely seems like uh, Ted Cruz has bigger a- ambitions. He, he doesn't. I mean, we saw this in the lead up to 2016. He, he definitely, I don't think, sees himself in the Senate um, because he was making moves, it seemed, that were right, one that were made under conviction, but that would also spotlight or put the spotlight on him for a potential run. And so it seemed to me he doesn't want SCOTUS. So what else is there for him? I, I think it's probably president. That doesn't mean that he can't be governor or can't be a good senator uh, for a number of years to come. But it surely seems like POTUS is what he's wanting the most. Question two. What's the oldest thing that you own? What is the oldest thing that I own? Because I'm, um, I'm not big on keeping stuff. You know, I'm kind of the anti-hoarder. I probably throw stuff away too early. I don't like leftovers in the fridge. I'm kind of that way. Um, so, I mean, other than a personal artifact, you know, like a baby picture, something like that. Sure, anything, I mean, I, anything I, I, other than your own okay. self. I, I, you know, I have, I still have. I don't, I don't keep, I don't do this anymore because they're all on YouTube now. But for years, I had a, a, a collection of old games. You know, so I've got DVDs of, uh, you know, the oldest Michigan game I have is the 1969 game when they upset number one Ohio State and the actual broadcast commercials and everything. Does that count? Sure. Yeah. All right, then that would be it. Other than like baby pictures, which are 42 years old now. One that comes to mind, I can't wear it anymore because I wore it so much that the lining ripped out of it. I need to have it refurbished. But by, my dad was in the Navy, his old Navy peat coat, just awesome I mean, timeless vintage uh does it, it's it's warm it lo- looks fantastic so um I, I, I it reminds me i gotta go get that thing taken care of well this thing i own is probably the the dresser in my bedroom and it's like it's nothing super super special but it's like 13 years old does it That's take about. you to a, a magical land <laughs> no i wish that would make it a little bit more special. Uh, question three: What's the stupidest thing you remember being genuinely upset about? Oh boy! I, I, in my life, it's Legion. I'll, I, I mean, I, it's Legion, guys. But uh, the, the one I'll give you that I've never forgotten. This is one time Dave beat on me, and he was right about it. We had a great basketball team at Michigan in '86, back-to-back Big Ten champions, loaded with just great players. We played Iowa State in the second round of the NCAA tournament. I was in the eighth grade. Opening 10 minutes of the game, the announcer's like, this is like the JV versus the varsity. We were so much bigger and stronger than they were, and they ended up beating us in the game. And I thought for sure that was finally going to be our year to make the Final Four. And I was just bawling after the game. Dave walks up to me and he's like, are you blanking crying? I'm like, yeah. Over a game? Yeah. And then he just beat the snot out of me. And you know what? He was right to do so. I'm going to own that. He was right on that one. That is a beating I deserve. That's the dumbest thing I've ever been that upset about, Todd. Before you even said that, though, I, was, I wasn't I was even going to go back that far, but sports, I, I, it doesn't grab me like it used to, but every once in a while in the fourth quarter of a game, and I'll be yelling at the TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Northwestern State versus Iowa in 2006. Oh, I remember that. The shot at the buzzer. I was literally sick. And I remember that game. You're listening to Steve Dace.
Liberty's Bat Signal, the Steve Day Show. Something completely different. We need to have a talk about an excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. See, there's no guilt in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the culture crap and get to the hotel. We gotta get some buzz going. Yes, we do. So this is the nightly buzz. We go back, take a look at some of the headlines we missed from earlier in the program. As told by us, relayed to us, I should say, by our producer Aaron, who has been uh, trolling your social media throughout the course of the day, the water cooler where you work. He's got those headlines that are trending now. We have the hot takes. First, a story quickly that was uh, unfolding as we were on the air last night. Jeff Sessions, now Attorney General, won confirmation yesterday evening to become the next Attorney General of the United States. It kept a Senate fight so contentious that one of the nominee's biggest critics was forced by majority Republicans to sit out the last leg of the debate. The Senate narrowly approved the Alabama Republicans' nomination, 52 to 47. This is the most important cabinet choice Trump has made. And I said, and it has nothing to do with Sessions per se. Um, When we laid this out after the election, I said why this was so important. Much of the damage, I mean, what what Lynch and Holder did at Justice, they were the stormtroopers of Obama's transformation of America. And that's what they used. They used the Justice Department as an injustice department to promote injustice and to enforce it. It is vitally important that the person that is in there roll that back. And that that post has as, as, as much power in the executive branch as almost any job other than the presidency itself. The influence, Todd, that it can exert on local attorneys generals across the country, that it can exert on state governments, things that it can in, that it can impose itself into regarding voter fraud, uh, discrimination of all forms, including against uh, religious believers, is pretty sweeping, actually. Uh, and and so, I hope that our optimism in his selection when it was announced. I hope that it is fulfilled because that would go a long way in overcoming the systemic inherent weaknesses Donald Trump and baggage Donald Trump brings with him to the presidency. Well, now that he's in the ball game, we go back to what you were talking about yesterday. If everything that Sessions does ends up with a court somewhere putting up uh, putting on the brakes like it did with immigration, uh it it just doesn't matter. And I fear that part of this, it, one aspect of this might be just putting that we tried really going for it, but ultimately then coming up with the same excuse. So you will by be, you will be by default a low energy jab. I hope at this point in his life, he doesn't look like a grumpy old man. He's polished, but I hope he's got some grumpy old man in him and said, you know what? I'm going out in a blaze of glory. Parents in the United Kingdom who claim they would have aborted their children if they had known they were disabled in utero have been awarded what amounts to 87 million taxpayer dollars in a wrongful birth lawsuit. This is where this is where you open up the book of lamentations but read it in reverse. Instead of lamenting how long o oh lord must your people suffer? When you see a story like this, 
you you write the inverse. How long, O oh Lord, must you be patient with this injustice? This is this is where you get all imprecatory up in here. This is this is when you're like there needs to be some seals opened. Okay? I mean, a divine can needs to be opened. Because you're living in a very bleak, dark place. Especially when you consider, look at how well-dressed the people are. How educated they are. These are not some third world countries. This is not Haiti I visited a few years ago, and I keep I hate playing that card. It's just the only mission trip I ever took, so it's so far, so <laughs> left it indelible. I have nothing else to compare it to. But there, there's not. This is not where there's open remnants of a demonic voodoo takeover of a culture. This this is you drove down the streets and they look largely like what they looked like fifty or sixty years ago, except for more modern technology when it was when it was considered, you know, a harbinger of of Christendom. And yet these are just empty relics now, whitewashed tombs. This is what that external religion Paul talks about, that on the, exter- on the, on the exterior has this, a form of aestheticism, a form of morality that seems to be, that, that looks godless. But when you look a little deeper, the number of the beast there is 6666, never reaches the number 7, which is the number of godly holiness and completion. It can get as close to it as it wants, but even one digit away is a chasm. And that's what's going on here. And then you contemplate that maybe that kind of judgment isn't forthcoming. And that's the most frightening thing of them all to me. Because that, that's when your parents disown you. When they don't even punish you anymore. When, they, when you're out. When they don't even think it's... They, they think you're so far gone you would not get the message. So there's no point in breaking their foot off in your backside. And I fear, that's my fear, actually. <laughs> that's, that my fear is that that's where we are, that, that, that the divine hand has washed his hands of the matter and has simply said, you know what, you guys, in your fake religion and your fake enlightenment and your fake tolerance, I'm, I'm, I'm in other portions of the world doing a work now, and, you know, last one out, turn out the lights. God says to us, thy will be done. I mean, yeah, this is this is right out of Revelation, where, where Jesus says to one of the churches, you know what, if you do not return to the things that you used to do, I will come to you, and I will take away your lampstand. And that's that's what this looks like. Right. I'm going Isaiah chapter 1. Where would you yet be struck that you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart is weak. A former top scientist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, has stepped forward to expose the malfeasance behind a key climate report issued just before the United Nations Climate Change Global Warming Conference in 2015. The whistleblower, Dr. John Bates, led NOAA's Climate Data Records Program for 10 years and reveals stunning allegations in a lengthy Daily Mail expose posted just a few days ago. Uh, This is fake news, and let me tell you why. These guys weren't swindled by data. They were told what they wanted to hear. Okay? This is their religion. Nobody was swindled. There, was no, there wasn't going to be any... There was not going to be any contrary data even entertained. It's been out there. There's tons of contrary data to this. They didn't have to... It's not, there's not just one unitary source of information on this. But, but Steve... They chose but, to follow this dogma. But climate, uh, pl- climate researchers are all in agreement that there is climate change. Exactly. 
Uh, that's that's the, that, so, so no one's been swindled here, Todd. This is this is classic CYA. So what you're saying is that if real scientists had been in the room or on the other end of this uh, research, they would have called BS a long time ago. It wouldn't have taken one guy, you know, as soon as they heard it, you know, and nah, that's not it. But because they're so far down th- their own rabbit hole already, you know, they, 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 they just take it in and nod agreeingly because, yeah, that's... That's the game. Yes, That's this what is we con- want. This is confirmation bias right. is what it is. This is, Swindling is, is now it means, thank you for telling me what I wanted to hear. Okay, that's not a swindling. You're just a liar. You're listening to Steve Dace. You cannot stop him. You can only hope to contain him. This is Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review here on the Salem Radio Network. It is Thursday. We like to play a little game here on the show every Thursday night called Buy, Seller, Hold. Our producer, Aaron, puts forth a series of provocative statements. Todd and I will decide, yeah, we buy that. No, no we're not buying that. We're going to sell on that. Here's why. And then once every week when we have a cop-out or we think there's not enough information out there to make a hard call, in other words, when we cop-out, uh, we are allowed to put a hold on that decision. And what we ought to start doing, Aaron, is when we put holds on statements, is you ought to you ought to t- you ought to tag those, okay, and bring them back a few weeks or months later, yeah, and say, hey, now that uh, you put a hold on this, where are you at on this now? We should do that going forward. By the way, that is a uh, that is an excellent idea. Uh, we'll start. Republicans will not fix or change any of the policy of Obamacare. They will, however, re- rename it to something like the Patient Choice Act. I'm gonna I, I'm I'm gonna sell that. I I know why Daniel is so our buddy Daniel Horowitz is so pessimistic. Look who's optimistic now, Steve. This is not optimism coming. <laughs> okay, let me finish my point. This is not optimism coming. Everything he is saying is factually true. The conclusions he's drawing from the facts he is stating are reasonable, particularly because the greatest in, you know indicator of, of future performance is past behavior, right? We've we've seen this surrender theater. We know how the movie ends. Here's why I don't think, though, I'm not saying they'll go as far as we would like, but I do think there will be some form of substantive repeal, and here's why. When a guy like Krauthammer, who is, if you want to know what the Washington Republican Party really thinks, okay, if you ever, you know, there's some people that are just stenographers or, or and, 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 I, Meaning that they basically are proxies for factions or candidates, things of that nature. Uh, or, or maybe a better term might be a barometer. Okay? If you want to know, although sometimes they are stenographers just repeating verbatim, passing along what their sources wanted them to say. But if you want to know what the Washington Republican Party thinks, Krauthammer is a bellwether. I mean, when he when, when he opens his mouth, the Washington Republican Party comes out. And would you put Rove in that group too? Probably. Maybe. I think. I think. I think Rove takes himself more seriously than anybody else does. Frankly. Okay. Oh yeah, he just called and to say that uh, Mitt Romney just won in uh, 2012. Yes, but but Krauthammer was there before Karl Rove got there, and he'll be there long after Rove is gone, probably. 
Krauthammer, I think, is a pretty good bellwether. And when Krauthammer is saying not repealing Obamacare would be the greatest betrayal the Republican Party has ever had, and he is saying that. That. And when was the last time Krauthammer, by the way, every time we've ever, Krauthammer's the guy that every time we substantively tried to get Republicans to fight, told us we were wrong, we can't win, and spoke up for, yeah, yeah, that's not how things are done around here. So, Todd, for Krauthammer, who is their own, he is their sage. For him to say not repealing Obamacare would be the greatest betrayal the Republican Party has ever done, that tells me that the Washington Republican Party knows that they have to do something meaningful. Do I think it will go as far as we would like? No. Do I think it will be a complete fulfillment of their promise? No. But it, will it be as haphazard as what Aaron's statement is, is, is suggesting? No, it won't be that either. I'm selling as well. D- Donald Trump is a laughingstock uh, comfortable with the laughing stock he is in certain circles right now, but this is the kind of thing that could turn him into a laughing stock that he, he he can't control. The environment could potentially change. It would be insane not to follow through on this, even with whatever troubles are coming. As you mentioned, Steve, this is not just a it's not just a reset button. Damage, so much damage has been done. It's going to take some legwork to go back. But I, I have a hard sell on this, it, it, only because it is insane to do otherwise. I would buy that all the way, actually. I would, if I can insert myself here. Uh, the, the, leave it to Republicans to do nothing at all, but do just enough to where they get all the blame when things go wrong. And that would be what renaming it <laughs> would do. Um, next thing. Uh, Donald Trump will have his phone taken away from him at least four times in his first year in office. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely buying that. <clears throat> in fact, I, I, pardon me, I, I'm trying to figure out why this is not a national security issue. I mean, for the president to be out there with an, uh, do we know if this is secured? Do we know? Is it an unsecure phone? Is it the same phone that he always had? Uh, I, I, I'm buying on that. I don't think there's any question about that. I mean, when you look at what's gone, we're not even a month into this, and you look at what's gone down with this thing already. This is this is one of those moments where he will have to acquiesce because it will end up ca- causing him so much internal political damage otherwise. You're right. Totally right, but I'm still selling. <laughs> <laughs> More in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. For critical thinkers only, The Steve Day Show. All right, let's play some more buy, sell, or hold here on The Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review. Aaron throws out statements. We decide whether to buy, sell, or hold. Neither one of us has used our hold yet. So we've still got a chance to cop out, Aaron. Under Betsy DeVos's leadership of the U.S. Department of Education, national test scores on things like reading, math, and science will improve. I'm going to use my hold here. And here's why. This should be true. If she is willing or able to follow through on several of the things that she has devoted her life to. And I'm not a, I'm not a believer, by the way, that she's like completely disavowed Comic Core. I'm, I'm just, you know, I don't, 
I'm not a guy that thinks when you're peeing on me, it's raining. So I, I don't buy into that. Like, I don't think you go from being on Jeb Bush's board and then decide in one Twitter statement, I'm not for Common Core, and then suddenly that's not true. Please clap. Exactly. So several of our colleagues at CR, like Michelle Malkin, for example, did not support her nomination for this reason. I am supportive of her nomination, though, because I think it's the best that Donald Trump is probably capable of in this area, given his worldview limitations. Because it was pretty clear when he said he was going to repeal Common Core when it would come up during the campaign, he didn't know what it was. Okay? It's pretty clear. So, on top of being um, an advocate of Jeb Bush-style education, she's also been a lifelong advocate of charter schools, private schooling, freedom and education, several things that we are in favor of. And that's why I supported her nomination, despite those misgivings. If she is allowed to implement policies along those lines, then the test scores will go up because there will be competition, Todd. And what always happens when there's competition? Products get better. Achievement goes higher in every venue of human life because of the way we are wired. This is why we need to have incentivization. This is why we need to have a meritocracy. But if those are talking points, and she never really engages anything beyond a bully pulpit on those issues, then I don't think you'll see any substantive movement. In fact, I could see teacher unions because they're this partisan. And I'm not, I don't want to say this, but I will, and I believe it. I think you could see teacher unions encourage the tanking of test scoring. Just to say that things are even worse under President Trump. See, he brought this woman in, doesn't know what she's doing. She has no experience education as if, a, as if raising a bunch of, if raising your own kids and putting them through schools means you have no experience in the education system at all. If you're a mom and you are sincerely invested in your kid's life, you have plenty of education experience. Were you ever a student yourself? You got What she doesn't have is your statist education experience. That's what she doesn't have. So if, 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 if she's not serious about implementing these policies, I think they'll try and tank her. Um, but that's why I'm going to place a hold yet, because right now, a lot of what we've seen from Trump is... The one area where he has substantively tried to keep a promise was on this immigration thing. The rest of it, he has kept rhetorical promises, but not really a lot of substantive ones. I'm going to sell. For her to be a success, she would ultimately have to return power to the states. That's undeniably a win. But at every level, uh, teachers' unions, uh, demagoguery holds sway. And it's just going to take a long time to move above and beyond that. So, again, even and plus, furthermore, one thing, and I heard this from teachers, it was remarkable, No Child Left Behind, for all its faults, it, it, it forced a lot of nonsense thrown out the window. So, quite frankly, our test scores have already increased to the extent they would, they would just not, not being insane in many ways. But I just uh, we now we're dealing with the the bad one of the bad parts of No Child Left Behind, where you need continuous improvement every single year mm-hmm. when you've already pretty much maxed that out. I just that's a hard sell to happen, no matter how well she does. Hacksaw Ridge or people associated with the film will win two Oscars. If I'm doing my math right. Shouldn't be that complicated. It's up for six Oscars. Best Picture, Andrew Garfield. Best Actor in a Leading Role, Directing for Mel Gibson. Uh, Film Editing and Sound Editing, along with Sound Mixing. Um, I'm going to say Sell. 
maybe it'll get one of those sound ones, maybe an editing one, but I, I'm I'm shocked that it was nominated for many as many awards as it was, given uh, who the director is and the overtly Christian subject matter of the film. Uh, I mean, you take out a few swear words of guys, you know, facing the worst humanity has to offer in a war zone and believe entertainment that's making my nefarious plot movie, you thought they could have made this film. All right? I mean, that's the... Everything else in there, you would have thought that could have been this, the same thing that did God's Not Dead could have done this movie, except for a few uh, colorful four-letter metaphors, as Spock once referred to them in Star Trek IV, uh, because of uh, a, the depiction of what's going on in a war zone. Other than that, this is an overtly Christian movie. In the era of Trump, you're looking for... Oppor- these guys are looking for opportunities to grandstand. They're looking for opportunities, like the, the fool dude who's a nobody actor on Stranger Things, who nobody, oh, yeah. nobody even knew his name. They like the show that know his name. Now everybody, can, now everybody made a name for himself by going off on Trump at the, at the SAG Awards or whatever that was. What happened with Meryl Streep? People are going to be looking to make their bones in Hollywood. This is their Super Bowl, Todd. The idea that for best director, best actor, and best picture, three of the four most important awards other than best actress that they give away on their biggest stage, they're going to hand them to a film with this message and miss out on the chance to call us all a bunch of racist, misogynist, homophobes. I'm not buying that. Yeah, absolutely hard sell. Just picture this. You're you're two and a half hours in and you've been getting speech after speech from Exactly. The, and then all of a sudden we now we're going to pause for this word from Mel Gibson. Yeah, not going to happen. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, Patriots. In one of the next three season seasons we'll go nineteen and zero. after which Tom Brady and Bill Belichick will ride off into the sunset. I'm going to sell. I think they just, want that. I think they I think want they, they went 8 18 and 0 one season. I there's think they do. I'm there's just gonna, no reason why they think that they can't do that again. I I'm sure they would love that. But I'm I'm going to sell because no one's ever done it. So my odds are pretty good that that won't happen. I'm going to sell. They there couldn't is, do it either. With there the is most a reason. talented yeah. team that they had, they couldn't do there it. There is a reason they believe they can't do it and his name is Randy Moss. I mean that he was at the peak of his mm-hmm. career. I mean that not going to happen. They also had more name players on that defense. The Teddy Bruskies. Guys, they don't have name players on defense now. That was the most talented team that they had. And we forget that the big topic of conversation that season wasn't just that they were undefeated. They were running up the score on guys. I mean, it was, they were putting 30, 40, 50 burgers on people if they could. And they couldn't. And that team couldn't do it. So maybe it just can't be done. You're listening to Steve Dace. You'll have to pry this microphone from his cold, dead fingers. This is Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. We've got a couple more to close out buy, sell, or hold for this week, Aaron. That's right. Uh, after the first Star Wars anthology movie, Rogue One, was a success amongst fans, the next one centering around Han Solo is going to be a letdown. Sell. Well, define letdown. Do you mean that in terms of um, uh, quality product, or, or quality so product, and, not, not yeah. box office? Correct. All right, because Han Solo is a much more powerful brand. It's a known character. It's one of the most power, most famous movie characters of the last 40 years. So it has a built-in 
um, a base not just because of the Star Wars film, but his added persona. It has a built-in base that Rogue One did not have. You know, all new story characters, actors we largely didn't know. Uh, so, I mean, it, there's no way it will not, I think, surpass Rogue One's box office. Um, but I, I do I think there's a chance that it could not be as good of a movie? Okay, I, I, I think there's a chance. I'll buy that. I, I think when you do have a character that is this well-known, I think sometimes you struggle with... Uh, how much emphasis to put on fleshing out the parts of the character that you were always interested in as a storyteller. And and sometimes that, that gets replaced by the overall story. And and when you don't have characters with huge um, uh, backstories and known quantities like they had in, in Rogue One, you almost feel more freed up to take some of the chances they did, like the way they ended it, where they lead right into episode four. And nobody saw that coming with the CGI of Princess, a younger Princess Leia, and the scene with Vader that they put in at the end of the movie. You almost feel more free to kind of stretch your limits a little bit as a storyteller because you don't feel like there's a certain boxes that we have to touch things that people want to see. And I think they had that actually in Force Awakens. I think they felt like there were some boxes they had to they had to they, that they had to check and and the story I think was limited because of that. Rogue One, I think they expanded that more. So I could see there being a possibility of that limiting the Han Solo movie too. I'm going to buy because even though we're at the start of redemption with Rogue One, the more I read about the the massaging the retakes oh it really wasn't as bad as it was but there's so many different things that they ultimately went back and changed at the 11th hour i i don't i'm glad they did but i i just still do not understand these people who are involved with this and it seems like it's amateur hour mistakes that they're making they're showing this product to people and they're like um you know in the pre the pre you know whoever they show it to steve early on before it's released and people are like what is this so i'm still dubious Oh, last one really quick. Major League Baseball will institute a rule wherein in extra innings, a runner will start at second base. Oh, sell. They're testing that. That's way too gimmicky. I, I don't believe they'll do that. Todd, you believe they're going to do that? That's way too gimmicky, man. Well, there's instant replay in baseball. They've already, now, so anything's they've already possible. started doing it in the minor That's leagues. an innovation. That is not a gimmick. I'd rather have games end in tie. <laughs> <laughs> Listening to Steve Dace. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. Hour three of the Steve Day Show underway on a Thursday night. I'm not Steve. I'm his producer, Aaron McIntyre. They're doing something a little bit different uh, this hour. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Of course, as always, we care about uh, and we want to know what you think about what we think. And you can contact Steve. Steve at SteveDace.com. Find him on Twitter at Steve Day Show and on Facebook by searching for Steve Dace, that last name, as always, is spelled D-E-A-C-E. Well, as Steve mentioned last hour, we're going to be doing something different. 
This hour, we're going to be hearing excerpts of a sermon Steve gave to his local church just a couple of weeks ago. It's about what church leadership really looks like. It's out of the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Let's listen to part one. We're hearing a lot of talk in our culture today about the church has to lead. I was down at the Iowa legislature about two weeks ago for my annual uh, dragging me into the door, kicking and screaming visit to the den of iniquity. And we were having a press conference uh, where a bunch of pro-life activists, a bunch of us who are active on that issue, came together unified uh, on how we can work together for once uh, to save children in Iowa. And there were a lot of legislators that were in, in the press conference. That was a surprise. I figured a few would show up, but we had well over a dozen that showed up. And uh, during the Q&A with the media, one of them stood up and said, we really need the church to engage and lead on this issue if we're going to finally win this issue. And everybody in the room nodded their heads in an agreement. Well, everybody except maybe the press that was there. All right, but everybody else nodded their heads in agreement. And we hear that a lot. But, but what does that actually look like? We know what the qualifications for church leadership are. We know what those are. But once someone is qualified, once they are biblically qualified to lead, what does their leadership look like? What is it supposed to look like? How do you know if you are a church leader, how do you know that you were leading in the way God has called you? If you are submitting to church leadership, how do you know that you are submitting to the right kind of church leadership? Paul is going to walk us through a framework of that this morning. Verse 24, now I rejoice, Paul writes, in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Right away, Paul shows us church leadership is not for glory. It is not for riches. Don't everybody apply at once, okay? It's not for glory. It is not for riches. Because the very first thing Paul makes it clear, church leadership must be willing to do, which brings us to our first point this morning. Church leaders must be willing to suffer for Christ and his church. Church leaders must be willing to suffer for Christ in his church. Did Christ suffer for us? Yes. Then those who are called by him to lead will then have to do what if they are going to emulate him? Suffer. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, if they do this to a green tree, what will they do to you? On that beach in the gospel of John, emulating the moment where Peter denies him three times, Christ looks at Peter three more times and says, do you love me? And then the final time he says, then feed my sheep. What was the price Peter would pay for feeding the sheep? What price did he pay? Glory, riches, Six-pack abs, New York Times bestseller list, massive mega church and a six to seven figure salary. What price did Peter pay? Crucifixion, upside down. That's the price that he paid. Why, was, why must we suffer? This is something a lot of us don't understand. Why? Because suffering tests our faith. It grows our faith. It draws us closer to Christ and here's the, here's the missing ingredient. 
Our willingness to suffer for what we believe is actually one of the most powerful evangelistic tools that we have. Let me repeat that. Our willingness to suffer for what we believe is actually one of the most powerful evangelistic tools that we have. Christianity makes its most impact culturally when it is lived out counterculturally. Let me repeat that as well. Christianity makes its most impact culturally when it is lived out counterculturally. When it goes against the prevailing winds of the culture. When you're weird. Now, when I say you're weird, I don't mean, you know, you're, wherever you're listening to this later on a podcast, walking down Main Street, ringing a bell, bring out your dead. That's just weird. Okay? That's not what I mean. What I mean is when you are biblically weird, when you are peculiar, the Amplified Bible, one of the words that it lists as a synonym for holy is peculiar. When there is something about you that is different from the rest of the world, and not, dude, wash your hair, there's too many colics in it, different. That's not what I mean. Different as in you're not worked up by the same things everybody else is worked up by. You're not stirred up by the same things everybody else is stirred up by. You seem to have a calm assurance when everybody else is losing their minds. You seem willing to pay the penalty for doing the right thing that others think isn't worth paying. That's what I mean. Now, sometimes a culture can go so dark that you do have to become weird guy. Like really weird guy now. Like wearing sackcloth and ashes and dining on locusts and honey. And about John the Baptist, Jesus once said, no man born of women has ever been greater. Several years ago, when I was first starting to branch out in my line of work, Amy and I were sitting in an airport getting ready to go speak to a pro-life conference in Atlanta. My cell phone rings, and it's a leader in our industry. Uh, Someone you want to work for. One of the four or five most powerful people probably in our entire industry. And he's one of us great guy. And he says, so, you know, so-and-so turned me on to your show and I've started listening to it. And I think you're really good and have a lot of talent, but I have to tell you, I'm concerned. And I said, what's your concern? He said, well, you're too radical. You know, he goes, I once was like you when I was younger. And then I learned you had to tone things down a little bit in order to be relevant and to get ahead. My fear is that you'll be so radical that people won't listen to you. You'll take yourself out of the mainstream. And before I could stop myself, the snark, which is my spiritual gift, the snark instantly responded with a statement that my, later on uh, my conscience couldn't cash. And before I could even stop it, it just came out. I'm a victim. I'm really, I'm governed by my impulses. There's nothing I can do. Don't blame me. And I said to him right on the phone, I said, you mean like that John the Baptist was so out in the mainstream and radical and Jesus said nobody born of women was ever greater than he. And there was silence on the other end of the phone for like, it seemed like in a William Shatner second. All right. And he said, I'm sorry. What'd you say? I said, absolutely nothing. I didn't say a thing. Please go on. I'm listening. Yes, go ahead. Now, listen, we have to be prudent. When God gives you a platform, you need to be a good steward of it. But the God that gave you that platform may one day say, go out there and be a be weird guy because they're so far gone, you're going to have to weird this thing up for them to listen. It wasn't like at the beginning of an apostasy, John the Baptist just went freak show. That's not the way it works, but sometimes it might. Are you willing to risk your platform? 
when God calls you to such a moment? Are you willing to do it? And, and that platform may not be a radio show. It may not be a pulpit. That platform may be your seat at the table at Thanksgiving this holiday with your family. Are you willing to risk, are you willing to risk for Christ? Are you willing to suffer for him? Are you willing to do so? If you have leaders that are unwilling to suffer for the gospel, you have the wrong leaders. One of the ways we used to test this is when Larry King used to have his show on CNN. And every time he'd bring on whoever was the Christian leader of the du jour of the moment, whoever was the new hotness, this went on for years. He'd bring them on and he'd ask him this question. So I, I deny Christ as my only means of salvation, do I go to hell? If you want to be depressed, go on YouTube. Go find many of those clips of many of those name leaders, some of whom you've probably purchased their books and prepared to be disappointed at their answer as they look for all kinds of clever ways to just simply deny Christ. Say that he wasted his time up at that cross, died for nothing, And God, by extension, is an abusive, the most abusive father in the history of the cosmos because he allowed his son to be tortured for nothing. We're listening to excerpts of a sermon Steve recently gave to his local church on what church leadership looks like. It's out of the book of the Colossians. We'll have part two in just a moment. to Steve Dace. This show is dedicated to bacon every day. The Steve Dace Show. Well, we need the church to lead. But what does that really look like? That's the topic of Steve's most recent sermon to his home church. It's out of the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. We're listening to excerpts this hour here on the Steve Day Show. Here's part two. Verse 25, Paul writes, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Oh, boy. The second thing church leadership must do, and if you look at the state of the country you're in, we are not doing this. Church leadership must preach the full counsel of God's word. Church leadership must preach the full counsel of God's word. Is it in, it's impossible to please God without what? Faith. Faith comes by what? Hearing of what? The word of God. So if we are not preaching you the full counsel of God... You may not have faith. And how will they hear the word, Paul writes in another book, if there is no one to preach it to them? How will they hear the word? No man, we like to say on my radio show, no man can rise above his own worldview. You cannot rise above what you do not know. You cannot know what you don't know. You can't know. Ignorance is not the same as being dumb. Ignorance just means you don't know. Dumb kind of means maybe you can't know. Very few people are actually dumb. Many people, though, are ignorant. And it's our job 
to educate them. That's why we're here. Teaching them the commands I have given you, Christ said. That's the full counsel of God. That means there's a lot more to this than I did something or God used me to move you to walk down this aisle one day and acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of grace. But that's the beginning of the story. That's not the alpha and the omega. That's the first chapter. The rest of the book is of your life is still to be written. Do you have church leadership there that is helping you to write it? Or is leading you to the one who would write it better than you could write it yourself? Or are you a free agent and on your own? Do they take what they preach on Sundays and apply that to the world around you? Here's what this means. When you walk out of here and everybody's done being fake nice, you hear the fake news? We do that a lot in my line of work. In, in buildings like this, we do a lot of fake nice. How are you doing? Good, great. How are you? Good, great. I really don't care. I just feel like I'm supposed to say that. So when you walk out of here and you're done being fake nice and the rubber meets the road and the challenges of the real world happen. When you go back to school and you're being pressured by that boyfriend or girlfriend to do something you know is wrong. When you go back to work and you're noticing the member of the opposite sex you're not married to a little bit longer than you should and they ask you, hey, what are you doing after work? When you're filling out your taxes and you decide whether you should be honest about something or not. When your kids do something really, really bad and that temper of yours is beginning to flare up and you're asking yourself, is it justified to let it out or should I practice self-control? You know, life, real life, those real life moments. Is what you heard in here on Sunday relevant to you right then? Is it? Some of that's your responsibility, but some of it's ours. Do we take what is preached here and apply it to what's happening up there? The letters that you read in the New Testament are responses to what was happening out there. They didn't just sit there and just preach the Gospels over and over and over again as some isolated philosophical construct. When they were faced with challenges like the ones Paul faces here among the Colossians, he dealt with those challenges in those days, that application to that time. And he does it to the Galatians to the Romans, to the Philippians. They were responses to the challenges of that culture brought to the gospel. Do we do this as your leaders? Do we apply the gospel to the challenges of your culture? Help you to navigate the moral pea soup that is your era? Or do we just say, that's it. Jesus loves you. See you next Sunday. There is only one way I know of to make God's word fully known. Now stay with me now. I'm going to get really complicated. The only way I know of to make God's word fully known is to follow me now. Make God's word fully known. I don't know of another way to do it. I don't know of a video presentation. I don't know of an audio book. Only way I know of to make God's word fully known to you is to make it fully known to you. Several years ago in our old church, we belonged to a small group and our church had just transferred leaders. The head pastor of the church literally got up Sunday because we didn't have elder accountability or anything. We had boards of directors, which were really just people that donated the most money to the church. That's great. So um, uh, he, we, we were concerned. We got up, we're, we're there one Sunday morning. We had just moved into this new building and the head pastor gets up and says, oh, at the very end of the service, by the way, after they get done with the whole presentation, oh, by the way, 
I've decided to retire and so and so is now in charge. You remember this? Amy and I sat there and looked at each other and said, that's one heck of a way to continue a chain of command. I guess I didn't realize church leadership was hereditary. So and so is in charge. Okay. I mean, all I've ever seen this guy do is sing. Really didn't know much about him. So I had a lot of people because I helped to teach at that church. People were coming to me grumbling and I got very uncomfortable with it. Don't want to get involved in gossip and everything else. So I went to Amy a few weeks later and I said, hey, let's invite so-and-so to our small group and find out what's who he, you know, what he's really about and what's really going on. So we came over, we had dinner and hung out for a while. And, and then we sat around after you know, we'd had dinner and everybody was relaxed and started having an honest adult conversation about the direction of the church. And um, I, I asked him a question. I said, hey, I'm concerned when I teach discipleship classes, how much the people that come out of our services on Sunday and come into this class don't know. I mean, I had a gentleman, in fact, I just had a gentleman that had come to my discipleship class. When we left, we left this church and came here, this was 10 years ago. So I'd only been a believer for two or three, two or three years when this was going on. Gentleman who'd been a believer longer than I was alive said to me once during a discipleship class I was teaching there, I've never heard any of these things. And he'd been with this pastor since he'd been in another church for like 25 years. So I was, I, I brought this up. I said, you know how, you know, we do a good job of presenting the gospel to our people. I'm living proof of that. But, but after they cross the line of faith, what are we doing? What, what's happening? I mean, you know, Peter says that we should be off milk and on solid food. So, so where's the solid food coming from? And I asked them, how much do our people, I mean, do we really, do they really know about different theological distinctions, how to live out their faith in this culture, things of that nature. And I'll never forget this. He looked at me sitting in my family room in the home we live in now. And he looked at me and said, you know, we often debate as a church staff, how much of that stuff people really need to know. It's one of those moments where somebody says something, you're like, that, that sounded weird, but you don't quite know why yet. So you just let it slide. Now, after everybody left, and, you, and, and then like an hour or two later, that moment comes back in your head, and you're like, okay, now I know what was wrong with that. So after everybody left that evening, first thing, I ter- after I closed the door, and it suddenly dawned on me, Eureka, I turned around and looked at my wife, and I said, hey, did, did we just undo the Protestant Reformation in our family room tonight? Is that what just happened? Church leaders now decide how much of the, of the faith the people are supposed to know? That's their job. Listening to Steve Dace. It truly is a force of nature. One of the most powerful storms ever to hit land. The Steve Day Show. It is the Steve Day Show. I'm his producer, Aaron McIntyre. This hour, we're going through some excerpts of a recent sermon Steve gave to his home church. You know, everybody talks about the need for real leadership in our culture, real church leadership. But what does that really look like? What does the Bible have to say about that? Well, that's the topic of Steve's recent sermon. It's out of the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. As I said, listening to excerpts of that sermon here this hour on the Steve Day Show. Here's part three. 
Church leaders now decide how much of the, of the faith the people are supposed to know. That's their job. I thought we settled that argument. In fact, this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this year, in fact. We settled this argument. Church leaders don't decide that for you. It's done been decided. The church leader gives it to you whether you want it or not. That's what the church leader does. Doesn't decide for you what you are willing or, or should know. That's been decided. If it is in God's word. Now, listen, there should be discernment. There's a time and a place for everything, right? To everything, there is a time and a season. You probably shouldn't take eight or nine-year-old kids and walk them through verse by verse Song of Songs. Heck, you might not want to take 13 and 14-year-old kids and walk them verse by verse through Song of Songs, okay? There's a time and a place for everything. But if you are an adult, if you are an adult then you should be preached the word of God. Every word. All the icky stuff in Judges we just went through line by line, you should be taught. All the stuff that is, offends your sensibilities, you should be taught. There should be nothing hidden from you. Despite your sensitive sensibilities, despite our cowardice, despite political correctness, despite cultural preferences, despite the risk and despite the reward, you should be taught what is in God's word. And you should be taught what is the history of God's people. Period. Even the tough stuff. When I was a child, Paul writes in another book, I thought, spoke, and reasoned as a child. When I became an adult, I set aside childish things. We're here to make you an adult. Adults sometimes have to confront the icky stuff. It's amazing to me. I run into so many people now in my line of work. Analysis isn't facts. Opinions aren't facts. You know what are facts? Facts. Facts are facts. It's amazing what is happening out there. And I think a lot of it is because we produce children in our churches. People sit around among elders and deacons and pastors. Well, we can't preach that. That will offend them. They won't like it. And then they won't give. Can't have that. We fear you more than we fear him. And that's why when you walk out of here, a lot of you don't even know what the definition of fear is. And you think your opinions are facts and your analysis and your preferences are facts. And they're not. They might be right. But they're not facts. Verses 26 and 27, Paul says, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The wording here is powerful, eloquent. It may seem tough to understand at first blush, but let's not overthink it. The point here is actually fairly simple. Church leadership leads people to Christ. Church leadership leads people to Christ. There is no salvation without Christ. There is no sanctification without the Holy Spirit, which you will only receive by receiving Christ. There is no wisdom or power capable of overcoming the spirit of the age without Christ's word. In short, we are nothing up here without Christ. Nothing. We have nothing without Christ. We have nothing to offer you but Christ. That is all that we have. Because there is no hope. There is no hope outside of Christ. 
Church leadership that doesn't make this the heart of everything they do isn't real church leadership. It's really just leading people astray. We've been listening to Steve's sermon to his uh, church from recent weeks about what real church leadership looks like. Well, you just heard what real church leadership doesn't look like and what it does as well. In the next segment of this sermon, we'll hear what real church leadership produces. And it's not maybe what you have in mind as well as we continue listening to this sermon from Colossians chapter 1 verses 24 through 29. We'll have part 4 in just a few moments. Listening to Steve Dace. He's got his finger on the button of truth. Put the finger down. It's Steve Dace. Church leadership in the United States, in our culture, it's badly needed topic of Steve's recent sermon to his home church is on what real church leadership looks like. It's out of the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. We've talked about what it looks like, what it doesn't look like. What does church leadership produce? That's next. Verse 28, Paul writes, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Here's what this means, which is our fourth characteristic of church leadership. Church leadership produces leaders. Church leadership produces leaders. You want to drive me nuts? One of my all-time favorite movie lines from when I was a kid in the 80s, when they asked Bruce Willis, I want to make you scream, and he says, play some rap music. I love that line, okay? You want to make me scream? Tell me about your, your church in multiple locations, Start me, get me started on that. That will drive me up a wall. Where the pastor appears via, via the video and hologram. Because apparently there's nobody in your community capable of being groomed or anointed to actually shepherd that church. And your brand of preaching is just so cotton picking special. We got to syndicate you. That drives me insane. That's not the model. What did Paul do? Planted churches. Groomed leaders and left. Gets on a boat, walks away. This is yours now. Any problems? I'm the apostle. Call me on my cell. Okay, I'll get back to you. Now, since we're in first century Rome, it might take six to eight months, all right, for the turnaround. All right, but patience is a virtue after all. But really, I'm not here to run this for you. I don't live in Corinth. I don't know what's going on all the time. That's why you got to report it to me. I don't know. I don't know why a church in West Des Moines thinks it knows everything that's happening in Johnston, everything that's happening in Granger, everything that's happening in Grimes, in Urbandale, Des Moines. Now, I have a pretty high opinion of myself. I'm painfully aware of that. Okay? Even I'm fairly confident you can find other people better at doing this on a Sunday morning than me. Where you live, that's not the model. That's not grooming leaders. That's expanding territory. That's expanding your brand. 
I get it. I'm in business. I got a brand to expand. I get that. Like, I'm not going to groom other people to take over radio shows that might beat mine. I get that. But you know what that's called? Business. You know what this is called? The church. We don't have a brand. We have a message. We have a gospel. And I don't care what you say. When the guy standing up here after that video recorded message is done, then stands up here and says, I'm the local affiliate here. You're not going to that guy with your problems. Because you've never seen him stand up here and preach the word of God. That's why. That's what a local church is. It's not a brand. Church leadership produces leaders. I think I've told you guys this story before. When the kids were little, Anna asked me once, Dad, when I'm 18, do I have to leave immediately? Because she was concerned because she turns 18 in February. So she was concerned she was going to get kicked out in the middle of her senior year. Okay? I said, no, I mean, I I guess, you know, you and Zoe, I, I have no problem with you guys staying here and taking care of you after you're 18. You know, if you're going to be adults, though, until you get married, I have no problem doing that. I mean, you're going to have to pull your weight, contribute. You're adults now, but I don't have a problem with it. Little Noah, little gears grinding in his mind. He starts thinking video games at 22, right? That's what he's thinking, right? And I looked right at him, and his birthday's in February, too. And I said, no, you young man, though, I did this to him. You got to go. Get out. I will throw you out. Time to lead. Why? Because he needs to know how to lead. He needs to know how to get a job. Take care of a family. Take care of a house. Be responsible. He is called to lead. He needs to know how to lead. You know where he won't learn how to lead? Sitting around, constantly being led by me when it's time for him to lead himself. Same thing goes in a church. You know, I mean, if you've got a mission or a passion, get out. Go plant a church. Now, if you can do that here, that's great. But if not... You know, don't just sit there and waste the vision God has given you. We don't, we don't just need more tithing units. I'm sure God will put somebody else in that seat. Thanks. You know, we'll take care of it. That's the mission here, to produce leaders. If you are not growing in wisdom and maturity in the faith, then one of two things is happening in your faith. Either you aren't fully committed, or you are under church leadership that is not fully committed. Those are the only two possibilities. Either way, the responsibility is on you to act. If it is you, then you need to own that and do something about it. You know, there's funny when you read the New Testament, there are very few things that we are actually commanded to do. One of them is to no longer be conformed to the thoughts and patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And all of the pronoun usage there points to the action being on you. So if your mind's not getting renewed then either it's you or it's the church. If it's you, take responsibility for that. If it is the church leadership, pray, ask God, are you calling me to serve? To be a light, to make the situation better? Or maybe you're calling me to go somewhere else. Like if you're in one of those churches that does the same tithing series every January, come on now, get out. Where they take the whole thing about bring your tithes into the storehouse. Test me on this. Totally out of context. And spend an entire month about why you should give. Leave. That's a business, not a church. Now you have a responsibility to give. Right? 
The electric company didn't give Grace West Church the do-gooder discount. So what are we going to do here in about 20 minutes? We're going to pass the hat, yo. That's what we're going to do. Right? Went to Haiti on a mission trip a few years ago when I called up American Airlines. They didn't say, oh my goodness, you're going to the poorest country in the hemisphere to, do, to be a do-gooder. We've got a first-class seat pro bono. Oh no. That'll be round trip, $648. Thank you. So money had to come from somewhere. It's like Alfred says to Bruce Wayne in The Dark Knight Rises when Bruce asks him, what happened to our nonprofit? And he says, well, there's no profits. So there's no nonprofit. <laughs> All right? So the money has to come from somewhere. That's how we faithfully give. But when the emphasis, when a church spends an entire month, particularly when it's sitting in a multi-million dollar building, and it spends an entire month telling you how you should give and not the gospel, that's not a church. That's not a church. That's what you need to do. Don't just stay. Act. You're listening to Steve Dace. So what's yours? Resurrection. He's bringing back the American way. It's Steve Dace. And back one last time to listen to the conclusion of Steve's recent sermon to his home church from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 24 through 29, on what real church leadership looks like. And we've been talking about, or we've been hearing from Steve about what it really does look like, what it doesn't look like, and what church leadership really produces. It produces fruit. And in the conclusion, what does that fruit look like? What really is the power of the gospel? Let's listen in. That's what the gospel does. The gospel takes a Jewish fisherman and turns him into the first bishop of Rome. The gospel takes a religious legalist, turns him into the apostle of grace, whose letter we're studying right now. The gospel takes a man whose, whose mother prayed for him every day for years, who had found himself in a demonic cult, a sex cult, and turns him into the most powerful thinker and philosopher in the church's first millennia, Augustine. That's what the gospel does. Church leadership is only successful when it points to Christ doing the leading. Those things, we can't devise a system. We put all our heads together. We're not going to be able to devise a system that can transform people like that. We can't. That's why all we have to offer you is the gospel. That's what does the transforming. And that, ladies and gentlemen, that is exactly how Christ wants it. Yes, each of us has our own individual personalities, gifts, styles, etc. But in the end, if it's us you see and not Christ through us, then as they once said to Michael Keaton and Mr. Mom, we're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong. You don't go to the church of Bob Deaver. Paul dealt with this too. Some say you're saved by Apollo. Some say you're saved by Cephas, a reference to Peter. Some say you're saved by me. There is one Lord, one baptism. You know, I love it when I walk through the front doors of Grace Church on Monday afternoons to go teach that worldview class. And on the pillars out front of the building, what does it say there? What's inscribed on those pillars? One Lord, one baptism. That is a reference to what we're talking about here. We have nothing. We are nothing. 
other than Christ in us, the hope of glory, as Paul writes here. Well, this hour we've been listening to as segments of a sermon that Steve recently gave to his home church. You hear it all the time. The church needs to show more leadership in the culture. Church needs to have leadership first. And what does that leadership look like? That was the topic of Steve's recent message, as I said, to his home church, and what church leadership looks like. Hope you enjoyed listening to this this hour. As always, uh, we'll be back for the Friday edition of the Steve Day Show tomorrow, including the Dace Group. Until then, Micah 6 8. Listening to Steve Dace.